and welcome to another episode of the Unmasked Podcast. I'm joined by a very special guest today, uh, Janine Yunez, who you probably are familiar with on Twitter as a lefty lockdown skeptic. And if you don't follow her already, you absolutely should, because she's she's one of the best followers out there on the you know, team reality side uh, at, at distilling a lot of complicated information to a very simple uh, tweet or thread or anything like that, and, and just, just has a great voice for speaking out against all these mandates. So, Janine, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you so much for having me, and uh, thanks for the kind description. Yeah. So... I wanted to ask a bit about your background. You come from obviously the legal profession and you have a kind of a different political set of beliefs potentially, or at least from the past from a lot of people that are kind of on the team reality side. So how did you kind of get involved in, in this? I don't want to say movement, but this movement <laughs> for lack of a better word. Yeah. So I was a public defender in New York for uh, almost a decade. And I, yeah, as you said, I came from the left. I considered myself a leftist, although I always had like some uh, differences of opinion um, with, you know, most of the people on my side when it came to free speech and various civil liberties issues. Um, when COVID happened, I was just horrified. I thought this is like obvious civil liberties <laughs> violations to tell people they can't leave their homes or run their businesses or send their kids to school. Uh, with masks, you have to wear a piece of cloth on your face. Um, and so I, uh, I did a lot, I started doing a lot of research and then it took me some time to get up the courage to say something. I was honestly quite scared because it was just completely, um, you know, prohibited to say anything to question the uh, lockdown and, and mask mandate narrative. And, and I did a couple of times in the company of friends and was met with quite some vitriol. Um, after a few months, I started to write for AIER, the American Institute for Economic Research, where Jeffrey Tucker was editorial director, and he published a piece of mine called um, something like uh, Why the Left Should Abhor Lockdowns or something like that. And then I just got more and more involved with um, them, and I continued writing and meeting a lot of people involved in this movement. Yeah, it's, it's a really uh, tough balance to strike between you know, kind of speaking up for what you believe in and, and potentially facing that criticism from people that you, you don't want to lose relationships with. And, but the fact that it's even a question of losing a relationship with somebody over how you feel about this is, is ridiculous, but that's, we could go on yep. for another two hour conversation about that. Um, so if I remember correctly, you were kind of semi-anonymous where you, I don't think for a while you had your name on your Twitter account and, and obviously that's changed. So what kind of made you decide to put your name on your account, which I just did as well. And, you know, it is it is a risk. So how did what made you kind of take that risk? Um, you know, at that point, some people I went by like by lefty lockdown skeptics, some people were starting to put it together based on my articles. So once I started to write the articles in my own name, um, I was saying a lot of similar things, I would just be a little more polite in the articles. I guess. <laughs> um, so, but some people thought it was me. And then I was like, you know what, I might as well just I'm just gonna go for the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, at some point, I just uh, I just took away the the name and went by my own name. Got it. So there's there's so many different angles to COVID policy, and there's so many different ones. Some of which are are really abhorrent, and some of which are are annoying more so than they are kind of morally uh, offensive. But if there's one issue that you're the most passionate about and there's if there's one that you think is the most important to end or fight back against and, and to kind of end permanently, what would it be? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I don't think I would answer that as like a particular policy like mask mandates or lockdowns. I would say it's the 
it's the overarching idea that the government should be able to con- to uh, to implement measures to mitigate the spread of a virus that's clearly endemic. I mean, you know, of course, if this is an Ebola situation and, you know, we're talking about something that kills 50% of people and very short-term measures could be implemented, I wouldn't see it the same way. But um, I think we've just adopted this, the wrong mentality that the government can mandate uh, things in the name of health. And so I think that's sort of the principle I, I think is the most problematic and that I contend with the most. Right. Uh, and kind of relatedly, have you been surprised by how many people kind of on the left have supported a lot of these measures, just no matter how absurd or ridiculous they might be? Or are you surprised by that? Or has it been, you know, I kind of expected this or what's been your reaction? Well, not anymore. <laughs> but at the <laughs> beginning, yeah, I mean, I thought so I thought, um, you know, people were scared. And I understand that they panicked. But then I thought once you started to show them the data that they would uh, open their eyes a bit. And there was one figure I remember, I think Sinatra Gupta had cited it uh, a lot, and it came from Oxfam that was saying 130 million people worldwide are going to face starvation because of lockdowns, because of supply chain disruptions around the world. These are mostly going to be like black and brown people in third world countries. And I thought, okay, like this is going to be it. (laughs) They're going to see that this now we can't do this anymore. And nobody Mm -hmm. blinked an eye. Um, (laughs) I'd like present them with the figure and they didn't care. Uh, And that just showed me, I mean, I was sort of stunned and I thought, and I realized that, that a lot of these people are really, really hypocritical and they pretend to care about poor and working class people. And it's really just about protecting the Zoom class. Yeah. So I'm always interested in the kind of why, like why are things, you know, it's one thing to say, OK, well, this didn't work. But what about these politicians assumptions were wrong? And how did you get this so wrong? You know, how did this happen? So, like, why do you think that is? Why do you think that there are so many people that are willing to kind of excuse away those horrifying numbers about global poverty and kind of the negative side effects of these policies. Like why is what, what has made COVID the sole focus of their, their thoughts? Um, Do you mean politicians or you mean people in general? Well, we could say both, but especially, uh, you know, kind of coming from your political, uh, the side of the political, at least, you know, maybe former even, but what, what is it about that group of people that has led them to kind of excuse these things? Like what is the underlying reasoning, I guess, in their minds? Well, I'd say a couple. So some people I think are genuinely afraid. And I think that they trust uh, institutions and publications like the New York Times a lot. Um, And like the New York Times presents these things as settled. You know, if you read the New York Times, it's like I was just reading an article today. Lockdowns obviously work to slow the spread of COVID or stop the spread of COVID, which we know, which is actually not true if you really look at the data. Um, So there's a lot of people just believe that they don't necessarily have the time or they frankly uh, intellectual competence to sift through the data themselves and to reach their own conclusions. So if the Times says it, well, that must be right. And it's very hard for them to believe that the Times is are misrepresenting things. Um, so some people I think are, are just misguided and naive. Others I actually think really like this. Um, they get to stay home. They probably didn't like their commute. You know, they had a stressful life. And this is now an excuse to stay home and appear virtuous. Um, all you have to do is wear your mask once in a while when you go to the grocery store or maybe you get delivery. So uh, those people I, you know, I think are in a little bit of a different place. And then I think a lot of politicians have sort of see- seen this mentality, both of these mentalities and seized onto it and realized that it's politically, it can be politically beneficial to them. Those are some, those are some really great points. And a lot of the points I've, I've made are very similar. And I think it's, it's a great 
way of uh, kind of explaining this phenomenon and, and especially the, the trust in these institutions. And there's been a, a just an over-reliance on the same few uh, sources of information and, and anything that doesn't come from that kind of group of, of corporations or, and, you know, media outlets and newspapers just isn't reliable, which is obviously ridiculous, especially considering how poorly uh, a lot of these outlets have handled COVID policy and, and communication. But yeah, uh, so that kind of brings me on to my next question, which was to me, you have this really effective way of communicating and, you know, you, you get a lot of people that are, are clearly responding and reacting to how you phrase things. And, you know, I've thought about this a lot, the communication around COVID policy has just been really bad. And it's it's kind of helped lead to this breakdown of trust and belief in in institutions and public health bureaucracies. And uh, well, so first of all, do you kind of agree with that? And then do you think that better communication could have made a difference in getting a better policy outcome? Um, yeah, I mean, communication, I guess I'm not entire. So if they're trying to communicate their own dishonest messages, then I would say no. Like, I mean, I think the CDC and the FDA, frankly, are completely lying to people and Anthony Fauci uh, about what the evidence is showing. Um, but if the message had been more honest, then uh, yeah. And, and that's part of the problem, I think, is they, you know, all, there's been all these mixed messages and they're constantly changing and, um, you know, this advice, that advice. And it, it, uh, so, yeah, I mean, that has been a major problem, I would say. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I kind of mean it in terms of like, you know, maybe things that might actually have some, some impact are just the communication around it is so bad. Like the monoclonal antibodies is, is the recent example I was thinking of where, you know, the governments have and a lot of in Fauci have downplayed the success of them recently, especially in, you know, things that might have had a, a big impact over the winter were just completely ignored because it doesn't suit what they're trying to sell. Uh, oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. So, yeah. so I guess I guess I would not call that messaging because I, they, because their purpose, right, was to not have people <laughs> want to get those things. So they, so actually they were effective in achieving their end goal. It's just that their end goal is uh, based on, you know, the wrong considerations, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, so kind of shifting gears a little bit, I, I, you speak out a lot and I do as well. It's become a, a large focus of what I've been doing recently, uh, against vaccine passports. And so I had kind of a few questions on this, but the first one is just, you know, even if they worked, if they showed a benefit, would it be a defensible policy to you? Um, I, you know, uh, that, I mean, that's a very interesting question. I, um, it, it would be very fact specific to me. Um, you know, I think because of the nature of COVID, I would say no. If we were talking about a different disease, uh, one with a much higher death rate, for instance, for all, you know, across the board age wise, um, and uh, the vaccine was sterilizing, you know, it stopped transmission. I, I, I could be in support of you know, I, I could see support. I'm not saying, I don't think there are no circumstances in which I would support vaccine mandates. Um, on the other hand, I would say that if you're dealing with a very deadly disease, people are typically pretty rational and will go and get the vaccines. So you actually don't need mandates. Um, but certainly with COVID, no, I, I'm, I'm very against them. Yeah. It, it, and it's so, and I, I agree with a lot of that. And it's, it's really interesting because we have this like clear unequivocal proof that they don't work uh, you know we've seen it in new york in la in san francisco 
you know, we every information that comes out is, oh, the new variant is less severe than the other one. And yet, so it doesn't work. And we're dealing with a, a new variant that is less severe than the other one. So how are these governments and how are these these cities able to get away with kind of keeping this policy in place when it's just been so utterly disproven at this point? Yeah, well, I, so again, I think, you know, the New York Times and other publications like that are com- are very complicit in misportraying what's happening. And I, I but I'm shocked. I mean, you can see what's going on before your eyes. You know, <laughs> these cities are yeah. everybody's getting COVID. The death rates are low. Hospitalization rates are low and they all have vaccine passport programs. So I don't understand how anyone thinks it works. On the other hand, I do think a lot of what's happening is it's more of a um, it's a pun- punishing people who won't comply. And I, I, you know, by talking some of my, to my Democrat friends and family, I get that impression because when I really push them on the logic behind it, they'll sort of concede, okay, it doesn't make much sense, but you know what, these are bad people who are not doing what they're supposed to. So it's okay to exclude them from society and we want to exclude them from society. And I think that's what it really boils down to. Yeah, that's uh, it's, it's pretty depressing to hear that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, you know, it's just, it's. Because again, how how do you how what's the logical consistency there for those people of of applying that same logic to, uh, you know, people that are obese or that have made smoking decisions or you know drug abuse? It's it it you know compassionate policy only works in every other aspect of life except for COVID. Is yeah, that, <laughs> is that kind of the sense you get from the, that side? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I sh- I'm sure you've seen these arguments on Twitter, too, that we shouldn't give, uh, we shouldn't treat people in the hospital who are unvaccinated, if, especially if their their issue is COVID related. Um, and this is just, uh, you know, totally insane. <laughs> like, we yeah. go, oh, you t- treat, treat drunk drivers and drug addicts. I was, when I was a criminal defense attorney, I had a couple of clients who had in the course of robbing or raping, someone had uh, gotten stabbed or, or shot and were put in, sent to the hospital. And nobody was saying we shouldn't treat these people. And they, exactly. I mean, yeah. it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, so is there anything legally that can be done? You know, my, my wife is actually a lawyer, so I know yeah. things that make no sense are often legal, <laughs> but yeah. it's still kind of remarkable to me that um, a lot of these governments can, can do this. Well, I, I mean, I've been trying to challenge vaccine mandates for since about um, August, and yeah, there have been some minor victories along the way, but not anything really uh, setting great precedent, I would say. Um, the, I mean, there have been some recent victories, as I'm sure most people are aware, on the, uh, the, the, the federal, the Biden's vaccine mandate, which has mostly been struck down. Um, looks like it's almost all four of the mandates are going to go away or sorry, except for the CMS one, the healthcare workers. So, but as I actually said on Twitter the other day, people should understand that these, almost all of the successes have been about the fact that the, the, uh, the branch of government implementing the mandate didn't have the authority to do so. They, so the, a lot of the decisions say things like, well, the president doesn't have the authority to do this, but Congress could, or maybe the federal government can't do this, but the states could. So there's really not, uh, there really haven't been good decisions saying that like the states or employers can't mandate vaccines. Right. Do you think that that is a, judges are kind of scared to make that ruling or is it just, you know, the legal basis isn't there for it? Uh, that's the, both things are true. You hit the nail on the head. <laughs> I think that the judges are scared, um, that, and they don't want to do something that would be seen as crazy. And, um, you know, they're afraid of being the one accused of causing people of dying of COVID or something. Uh, but, right. 
the other problem is that there's simply not good precedent. Um, there's just not, never been anything done like this before. So people, everybody cites to this case, Jacobson versus Massachusetts uh, from 1905, which is the sort of vaccine mandate case everybody claims establishes the basis for mandating vaccines. Um, that was a, in a town in Cambridge mandated the smallpox vaccine and fined the plaintiff uh, $5 for not getting, which is about $150 today. Um, there are so many differences between the situation now and that case, you know, including that, you know, the smallpox vaccine is sterilizing, stops transmission, smallpox is much more deadly. We're talking about a one-time fine as opposed to like losing your job or being shut out of society. So many differences, but the problem is that the court said in that case that a pretty low level of review applies to vaccine mandates and other similar public health measures. And so the government can kind of pull out a CDC webpage saying everybody should get the vaccine and that's enough to satisfy what's called rational basis review. And so that's the premise upon which a lot of these cases have been losing. I do think that there should be different arguments made um, or people should really be arguing that the nature of the uh, punishment means that we should be applying a higher level of review. Hmm. Okay. So, and it's interesting because I, my next couple of questions were actually related to this. And I, I was going to ask you about that, the piece that you did for tablet, which was fantastic. And, you know, you mentioned the Jacobson case in there a lot. So I was going to ask you about that. So that's, that's great. <laughs> so if there, and, and I highly recommend everybody go read this, uh, this article on tablet. It's great. It, it covers a lot of what you just said and, and a lot of other stuff. But so I was going to ask if there's an, any, any other takeaway from that article that you want people to know specifically, or, you know, what, what was, uh, kind of your, your hope to get out of that, that piece? Well, I mean, it was, so it was about uh, mandating vaccines for kids. However, I hope that people, I've written a couple of those pieces. I hope that people see with these articles um, that I'm really opposed to mandating vaccines for everyone. I think they should be illegal. I think the arguments become more stark when they're about kids because they face such a low risk from COVID and because the vaccines have been tested on them less. And uh, finally, the vaccines are only emergency use authorized for um, young children. Uh, there's a huge confusion about the EUA, the emergency use authorization issue with adults. Um, I can get into it or not, depending on whether you want that, but it throws a wrench in that argument, although courts have been rejecting it anyway. So, Yeah, so that I, that I would actually like to, to ask about that. Um, I think one one concern that I have, and I'm sure other people have as well, is when when we make the arguments against it based off of the EUA status, like I, I have no doubt the FDA is going to fully approve it for kids. You know, yeah. Maybe it's going to be a couple months or whatever it is. So, you know, what can you do or what would you tell parents that are concerned that, okay, once the full, full approval goes through, um, you know, and like you say, the FDA may not have been the most trustworthy over the last couple of years. So once that goes through, what can we do at that point? Um, well, there are still the constitutional arguments that can be made. Uh, I, I think there's an argument that uh, this violates one's rights to bodily autonomy and to decline medical treatment. There's case law on that that, that postdates Jacobson. And I think one uh, another thing lawyers should be arguing is that we've our notions of people's rights to bodily autonomy have evolved. And so Jacobson is, you know, not, I, I don't want to say overruled, but is not viable. We, we really shouldn't be looking at things through that lens. I also think that there's an argument that by especially with these sort of city passport programs where you can't do anything unless you're vaccinated, you can't do most things, um, 
that it's a violation of your substantive due process right to participate in society. This is not something anyone has ever argued. And I'm happy for, I haven't had the chance to bring a case yet arguing this. I'm happy if someone else wants to take the idea. Um, the, you know, so substantive due process is this notion that there are certain things that are so integral to our society and to our basic rights that they're not explicitly talked about in the constitution, like your right to parent your own child, for instance. Um, you know, the Constitution doesn't say you have that right, but we all assume you have that right because it's so obvious. And so I would argue that your right to, you know, go to, to participate in society essentially is, should be a substantive due process right, should be recognized as such, and that these city passport programs are effectively depriving you of that right. Yeah, and it's great to hear a kind of legal take on this because, again, I, you know, there's this thing about it just it implicitly feels wrong and it shouldn't be legal. And I, that was one of the things about, you know, we, we, people make these comparisons to wearing a seatbelt in a car and then they say <laughs> that's comparable to forcing you to get a medical procedure to go have dinner at a restaurant. Um, so it's it's kind of nice to hear that there is some hope legally for uh, to push back against it if, if there is a good case that comes up. Yeah, um, I also, I think that the booster mandates might, I, uh, I'm, uh, we'll be having something to do. I realize I can't say too much at the moment, but I'll, I'll be uh, doing something with that soon. But those are going so far. And the you know data is really, there isn't that much data about the health effects. There's clear uh, reasons to believe it might not be in many people's best interest. So I think those might go too far for some courts. Okay. So you brought up the, the EUA thing for adults. So what yeah. was your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, well, so there's a statute, uh, which is called the Emergency Use Authorization Statute, and it permits the FDA to uh, allow use of products that haven't been fully approved, they haven't gone through the rigorous testing process that we would normally require. Um, the, the idea behind it was really like a patient empowerment. You know, you, if you're dying of cancer and there's this experimental drug and maybe it can help you, you should be given access to it if you want. Um, and there's a, an informed consent requirement in the statute saying that recipients must be told that they have the right to refuse it. Um, unfortunately, courts have been interpreting that to say, well, yes, you can refuse it. That doesn't mean we can't take your job away. Your employers can't fire you. Uh, you still have the right to refuse it. Um, so that's one issue with that argument. And I think that's obviously wrong. Um, I, I think the spirit of the statute was that people should not be coerced into taking a product that hasn't been fully tested. Um, there's, so there's this confusion because supposedly the Pfizer has been fully approved, but actually there, this is very confusing, but there are two Pfizer vaccines. There's the Pfizer BioNTech and the Pfizer Comirnaty, and the Comirnaty is the one that's been fully approved, but isn't actually in use and never has been. So if you go to the, to the drugstore and get a Pfizer vaccine, you're getting the BioNTech, which is only EUA approved. Now, the FDA fact sheet says that the two are interchangeable, but legally distinct, and many people have been trying to figure out exactly what that means. It looks as though they may contain different inactive ingredients, which can affect the safety and efficacy. So, um, you know, so we've tried to argue that e there is no EUA, sorry, there is no fully FDA approved vaccine for adults either, but courts have been rejecting that argument. That's very interesting, and, and I've, I've heard, heard that brought up before, so it's good to kind of have a, a confirmation that that's an accurate assessment, yeah. which is, it is crazy. Um, one other thing with the kind of vaccine passports, and, and I have a couple other questions for you, but so my sense has been that in terms of, you know, travel, for example, that we have a, a kind of a right to freedom of movement, 
Is that accurate to say that that's a right? Because there's a lot of people that say, oh, we should mandate. I mean, Fauci comes out and says we should mandate vaccines to to use air travel, which, by the way, Canada already has and set new records for cases. But I digress. You know, <laughs> legally, is that something that you think is is would be accepted? Um, I will. Yes. Uh, no, I mean, no. <laughs> 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 um, I will premise. Pre sorry, I will preface this by saying that I uh, am not extremely well versed in this area of law, but I've looked into it a little. So you have a right to travel interstate. Um, I what I think that the government's going to argue is that, OK, you have a right to travel. You don't have the right to air travel. Get in your car and drive from California to New York. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, I think what one would counter with is that's not realistic uh, in this day and age. And, um, you know, uh, the way in which our contemporary society is set up assumes that you can get on a plane. Like, you you know, you live in New York, your kid lives in California. You assume that you can, if they need you, you can get on a plane and go see them, um, not, not drive however long it takes to get from New York to California. Uh, but I don't know how that will play out. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of scary times that we're even having these conversations, yeah. but it's uh, yeah, it is what it is. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, I I kind of wanted to get your sense. And I know this isn't your area of expertise, but it's it's something I've been asking everybody, and I I really uh, it's kind of underlies a lot of the problem I think with COVID policy, which is why has the media just kind of like abandoned all pretense of being kind of an adversarial, speaking truth to power type of of you know uh, the fourth estate? Like what what has happened? And why don't they question mayors or other officials as to why these vaccine passport policies or mass mandates don't work? We just never see that question asked. Yeah, that's a really good question. I, um, I, I mean, I have a few ideas. I can't answer it definitively. I think one is that it's clickbait. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. So by making people really afraid of COVID in the first place, that was clickbait that that gets them uh, more views than saying, you know what, don't worry about it, or maybe it's not that big of a deal, or, you know, maybe we shouldn't reorganize society around it. Um, as for why they sort of stick with this, maybe they've dug themselves in um, at this point. I, I don't know if they're just unduly influenced by democratic politics. I don't, I mean, another theory is that they're sort of in league with big tech. They all benefit from people staying home and being scared uh, and not socializing. And um, I mean, they all benefit financially. Yeah. Uh, kind of relatedly, and, and I saw your tweet recently about Barry Weiss uh, and her parents and kind of like finally waking up to reality on COVID policy and masking and all the other stuff. So do you think it's important for people to acknowledge that there never was any justification for this or kind of, is it good enough that they just acknowledge it now and, and don't, you know, support it in the future? Um, well, I, I mean, I'd rather the latter than neither. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, I do think it's important that people reflect a little bit. Otherwise, it will happen again. Um, I mean, one has to sort of see where, where you went wrong and got swept up in the hysteria. And if you if you think that what we did was right for two years, but okay, now now that things are the way they are, it's now it's wrong. Um, I think you're just likely to support such a, a similar thing in the future. Yeah, I've brought this up a lot and I, I completely agree. I think it, it, and that's what I try to do is just, you have to completely destroy the, the underlying assumptions behind these interventions, because if you, if you let them go with like, okay, yeah, they worked in the beginning, but they're not working now. They're just going to yeah. bring them back. Yeah, uh, exactly. 
Yeah. So, you know, I don't, do you think I'm being too pessimistic on that or, or, you know, what, what would be your thoughts on how do we kind of permanently end all of these interventions once and for all? Oh, well, that's a good question. I mean, I'm not, I'm not extremely hopeful. I mean, I worry a lot that in two or four whatever years, there's going to be another pandemic and it's just going to all come back. Uh, one upside of things getting so extreme with all of the mandates and, and so ridiculous, you know, I mean, it, just the, the lack of any evidence of, of showing that any of these measures do anything at all, the masking, the vaccine mandates, etc. I, I do have some hope that they're, they're getting so ridiculous that people will sort of start to look at the whole thing in a way that maybe they wouldn't have if they didn't, if they weren't so obviously absurd. That's that's a really good point. I hope you're I hope you're right. <laughs> I, will, I, I don't know about you. I kind of lean more pessimistic and, and things. So I, I it's good to kind of hear. It. But it is I do think that there is some chance of that. I, I've been, you know, for lack of a better word, if it feels like at every turn, they've kind of finally jumped the shark. And, you know, maybe it's just kind of gradually getting to more people as with more things get more ridiculous. So hopefully that's uh, hopefully we're on on that. Yeah. Uh, so what is your expectation for the next, I don't know, let's say year or so, like how close to normality will we get to in place? You know, you, if you're in New York, I'm in California. What are we going to see in, in these parts of the country? Oh, I wish I knew. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I actually don't have a prediction. I, I will say, I remember about a year ago, I was writing and I was trying to co-author a piece with a public health guy at Duke and we were, Sorry, we didn't have that much time to work on it and it was getting a little uh, difficult going back and forth. So at some point he said, you know what, let's just forget it. I think this is all over. Every With the vaccines roll out, everyone's calming down and I think this is over. And I look back at that and I'm like, oh my God, we thought it was over. Now, now things are worse than ever. So I just, I find it got completely impossible to predict. Yeah, it, it's very depressing how how little certainty there is about everything and you know you said I, I don't know if you saw this gavin newsom had had said oh we're gonna try to move to an endemic strategy and, and we'll have announcements on that and then i think it was yesterday tweeted out about the virginia school mask mandate ending that you know how could they end this scientifically proven measure and you just go oh my god every time you think there's one step forward it's it's four steps back yeah <laughs> it felt that way to you yes <laughs> yeah yeah uh, well, anyway, that was kind of all I had for you. I, I you know, really, really appreciate you coming on, taking the time. And uh, it's been really interesting to uh, kind of hear your perspectives. And, uh, you know, if you're not already following her on Twitter, please go do so. And, and you write a lot of pieces and, and there's a lot of great work that you've done. So thank you for all that. Oh, thank you so much for having me.